Hi, everybody. You're in charge now. Yeah, so we're going to have a little chat with all of our um, speakers from this morning, as well as we're joined by our afternoon speaker extraordinaire, Colleen Nununu. Hi, Colleen. of applause for Colleen. <laughs> Colleen, will you introduce yourself a little bit? Like, what do you, what do you do? In the, like, what do you do? Where do you live? Um, uh, my name is Colleen, and I live in Montreal, Quebec. Um, I work for Fairtrade USA based in Oakland, California. And uh, I do a lot of things, and I'll talk about that in a little bit, um, but I'm on the board of directors for the SCAA. I voted in favor of unification. Whoop. And um, also excited to see what's gonna come out of that. Um, but yeah, I work in coffee supply chain development. So, there. Very good. So what we're gonna do for over the next hour, we don't have to take the whole hour, we'll see how it goes, lunch break is right after that, is basically have an open conversation uh, amongst ourselves. Let's talk a little bit about each of the talks that we had this morning. As you might have sort of gathered, I think that we did in the planning process, there's certain themes that were threaded through the different talks, even into the afternoon, which has really been exciting. Um, and I think that hopefully that being tied together helps to emphasize certain points and, and drive certain points across and values as well. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, we'll talk about some other stuff maybe that uh, topics that I think would be cool to, and good and worthwhile to talk about with the folks that we have up here. We have our token straight white guy up here <laughs> for diversity's sake. I'm going to talk about Tokenize golf. the white guy. That's right. <laughs> um, but, and, and again, uh, Colleen's talk is going to be later on, but as you'll find out, uh, her topic is very relevant um, as well, and that thread continues to run through. So, I guess just starting out with uh, b between the th or among the three uh, speakers from the morning, anything you want to ask each other or things that kind of came up that um, I mean, we started the morning like just to sort of recap because I don't know if any of you were here, but I was here. Uh, you know, Meister kicked off the morning with a very introspective look. You know, thinking about ambition and what it means for me, for you, for all of us here on a personal level. And um, I thought for myself, at least, that was really important. I think for, for, for a lot of you all as well, the idea of like, you know, we come here, we come to, we talk about industry stuff, things tend to be very uh, first person plural or, or third person plural, like they, we, you know, or you, um, and thinking about me and how I feel and how, uh, my, like the things that define my journey through my career. Um, it's a really wonderful way to start out. Um, from looking inward, then how do we look outward? And to uh, jump over to Jen, talking about the ways that we interact, the ways that power dynamics and the ways that, the way that we engage each other in the industry and how they can go well and how they don't go well and wrestling a little bit with the realities of how those things often turn out. And then with Michelle's talk, kind of honing even further down to specific issues, specific topics within that idea of how do we treat each other, how do we act toward each other. Um, so yeah, so let's, you, you got the mic, Michelle. So I like, was just, it was handed to me. <laughs> I'll, I'll ask a question, even though I wasn't a speaker, so I was, I was listening intently to all of you. Um, but one thing that really jumped out that I guess was a thread between um, everyone is this uh, aspect of empowerment and speaking out and being able to um, communicate exactly what it is that you're thinking or feeling with other people. 
and trying to wrestle with this idea that you know when you're trying to communicate diversity or needs um, that are a little more inclusive, you know, putting putting a burden on the individual who feels like they are um, you know not being included to explain why they should be or need to be or things that you can change. And I know that there are a lot of people that feel like, you know, this shouldn't be my burden. I already feel this way. I don't need to, exp I shouldn't feel like I should be the one to explain to you the need to, um, to start thinking differently or start changing your policies. Um, so I guess using that as a starting point to think about, you know, there's this empowerment aspect and, and trying to foster an environment where you can enable people to, um, to feel more comfortable, but then recognizing that not everyone needs to do that. Um, I, don't, I don't have a question, but that's just a, a feeling that I had or a thought that I had coming from all of the topics. Definitely. Meister, maybe I'll start with you then. I mean, you, went, you kicked it off with us talking about ambition. And hearing Michelle and uh, Jen talk about their subjects, like what were some of the thoughts that, that in, uh, those inspired in you? All of the feelings. Um, you, know, you know, it's really interesting. I have been thinking about, uh, again, sort of understanding the way that we measure success and how we set people up for those successes. And that, you know, when you, when you follow through with a very traditional idea of what uh, the right candidate should look like for a job or what the right trajectory for a professional development should be, um, you know, we obviously have already established where that gets us in terms of diversity of personnel and where that gets us in terms of the social culture or the, the emotional culture of a, of a company. And so I think that they, they are really closely tied in. I think that there must be ways for um, companies and people who have the, these different levels of power, to speak to Jen's um, presentation as well, to really actively build ambition in their people in a more wholesome way that really does in, encompass more um, than, than simply the traditional means that we've already measured. Um, it, it also, I don't know if this is, this is sort of a tangent to, I was just thinking about what you were saying, Colleen, and thinking about Michelle's um, uh, speech as well, and saying like, you know, that idea of, that we all have of being really afraid of saying something and getting called out and understanding to the role of defensiveness in all of this. Like, almost if you were to flip all of these uh, presentations on their side, they're all about defensiveness and the way that that blocks us in our ability to grow. And the frustrating thing there is that defensiveness does not recognize itself at all. No one in the entire world that I have ever encountered who is being defensive would say, you know what? I'm being defensive right now. And so people don't really, if you can't recognize what that feeling is and what it brings up in you, it's really hard to shut it down, to say, we're gonna work through this. And I think that is one of the things that definitely speaks to me in terms of how people are able to um, approach their own personal goals. And then also it speaks to everything that you know, came after in your, both of your presentations. I'd love to talk a little bit more about defensiveness, let's, let's unpack that a little bit more. Like, defensiveness, you know, how do we even define that to start out with? I mean, to some degree, it's like defensiveness, what happens when you're feeling attacked? You know, 
But let's unpack that. Like, what do you mean by defensiveness right now with what you're saying? Well, defensiveness, if you want to make like a sports metaphor, I mean, it's, it's sort of like just batting a thing away from you. Of saying, you know, it's a, it's a form of protecting yourself that doesn't let the, um, the, the thing that you consider to be the assault to come close enough with you to actually make contact. You're just trying to keep it as far away from you as possible. So in an example, you know, would be calling someone out and saying, what you just said was sexist. And a person says, no, I mean, I'm just making a joke. It's just a joke. That's a defensive reaction. That doesn't permit those two people to really get at what the core of that conflict has been. And in that example, I mean, I kind of said it as a quip, but it's, it's one other way to look at it, right? That it's when you act like you're being attacked when you're actually not. Right, exactly. You know, right. I think uh, one thing, sorry to interrupt you. No, the, um, one thing I learned quite recently about defensiveness, and it's, it kind of came into all of your talks uh, this morning that I learned, is that um, I think that sometimes business owners need to recognize defensiveness in a positive sense, okay? So if you find yourself going, oh, I'm, I'm feeling a bit defensive here, you need to acknowledge that the staff member that you have or the, you know, the stakeholder that you're talking to is raising an issue with you that they feel needs to be discussed, okay? And if they are doing that and you feel defensive, you need to, I suppose, take pride in the fact that they feel comfortable about raising it. That makes sense? Absolutely. So like when your initial thing is like, oh, I feel defensive about this, I feel like I'm being attacked, you need to go, well, isn't it great that they feel comfortable coming to me about this problem? Uh, and that, that's a positive thing to start from. And then the next thing is just to listen, to kind of go, well, look, you know what, maybe I'm 100% wrong here, let's hear this out. Defensiveness is also, at least for me, why, like in particular, talking about race is so scary. Um, because it can, like, defensiveness can be just, like, simple and chill, like, just saying a joke and calling that out, but then there are people who will then go and attack you, even, and that's a part of their defense, and it's, like, you don't want to, like, you know, let other people down, and you don't want to, like, this person that you're calling out, you're not trying to tell them that they're a bad person, but the way they react to you telling them what they're doing is bad is just, like, it, like, it gives you anxiety. It makes you want to just, like, okay, well, like, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to, you know, do this. And that's why it's, like, for me, it took this long for me to, like, be able to, like, work up the courage to talk about this because it's, like, dealing with that over and over again and the varying degrees of defense that happen, it's, it's truly scary. And we talk about America, at least, you know, with the American context being very white normative mm -hmm. society, and one of the things that's come up a lot um, in media and conversations around race is, of course, you know, people of color have to think about these things all the time. You know, white people don't have to think about it as much. And very often, that, I think that defensiveness really comes from, I'm not prepared for this conversation. I feel completely ill-equipped. And for you, you know, being black and being someone who thinks about these things a lot and still having so much anxiety about talking about it, you know, how much more, you know, how much more difficult can it be yeah. in that sort of way that you know people of color have to empathize mm -hmm. with the majority, understanding that like it's a process. You know, there's there is right or wrong here, but it is a process, right? Yeah. yeah. And having like you know white people kind of speak up and be like, you know what, like I am being defensive, and like I understand that I'm not listening, and I like I need you to like let's sit here together and you help me listen like really helps me to be able to like talk more confidently about 
um, these type of things. So right. yeah. And there's a, such an insecurity that comes with it, right? Because we're human beings. We live in this world. There are certain interactions we feel like we should be good at. And I feel like you know, I've said for many years that you know there are certain things that people have an irrational sense that people should be naturally good at, like singing. You know, like you watch those American Idol auditions and people get really mad when they're told they can't sing. It's like, you don't, it doesn't have to be something you're good at. Like, it, and to be good at it, it actually takes a lot of work, a lot of practice. And for you to like be born, wake up, like babies don't wake up and all of a sudden start to talk about Black Lives Matter, like out of the womb, right? You know, these things yeah. take time and, and, you know, sometimes we've heard the word evolving, like it takes time to evolve, you know, to learn, but, you know, it starts with being a certain kind of open. I did want to back up a little bit and before, you know, as we delve into these um, different areas of, of focus, um, there's sort of a, an overarching theme that I wanted to kind of touch on before we move on, which is kind of the why do these things matter? Why do they matter for us? Why are we talking about this today? Like, why aren't we doing this on, you know, like Steve Harvey show or, you know, some other sh like talk show? Like, why is this an important thing for us coffee people to talk about? And I'm, I'm hoping to get maybe comment from each of you. Like, what do you think, why do you think this matters or why does it matter to you as a coffee person, aside from just, like, specifically as a coffee topic? Uh, okay. Um, so, I, a lot of the things I talk about today and the things that I've written about before were all internalized items and like experiences that I thought were just one off and only limited to me. Um, but once I started talking about them, writing about them, people would message me. Um, and most of these are private messages because people still don't feel comfortable speaking out yet. Um, but there are so many people who are messaging, uh, mostly positive, uh, on like how they've also experienced the same or similar uh, harassments um, and sometimes it's just so so strange like um, I talked to someone who worked uh, like when you work with a guy on bar I've, I've worked as a barista twice and I'm not a good barista I hate working with people <laughs> <laughs> and I really hate uh, strain like uh, customer service with strangers because I would receive like these comments and you can't say anything back uh, and I really wanted to say something back, and that's just not customer service. You can't do that. Um, so anyway, so like when you're working on bar, you'll you'll like see people ask um, questions to the male barista, like completely bypass you if you're working on bar or even if you're at register. When they could be talking to you about coffee, um, they just like they ignore you. And if you tell them something, they just still check with the other barista like to confirm what you just said. Um, so like that experience, it happens over and over again and sometimes you don't realize that it's happening um, until like years later and they're so small, but I'm not the only person who's experienced this and it's many women have, not all, but definitely many women have done this. And for the male baristas, some of them are good enough to call it out and be like, hey, she's actually the one who dialed in this coffee. 
So you're saying, you know, these are important because they're so prevalent on a day-to-day -day basis and they affect people so much. I think also uh, because this industry is so new, like in the scope of like every other like type of industry out there, it's just like we're still in this honeymoon phase of just like, oh yeah, like cool coffee, like we're doing it right, we're doing it great, and like this is, we're just like stuck on that and ignoring everything else, um, and it's like, I don't know, like especially coffee has been a thing maybe 20, 30 years now-ish, so it's like, when you're in a honeymoon phase for that long, like you're going to ignore like all of the problems and it's just like on top of that, it's just like years of like build up and build up and realizing like, man, like I don't, I'm not honeymooning anymore. Like there's something going on. Like a my, real lifetime. Yeah, yeah. like my, my mental health is being affected. My emotional health is being affected. And, and like I, I feel like I'm being stunted now um, by trying to stay in this honeymoon phase. So that's what I think it's just like our newness and yeah, we're just ignoring. And that, that newness presents a lot of opportunities, but mm -hmm. also like yeah. it drives you to want to mm -hmm. make things mm -hmm. better. But it's great because like with that newness, if we're calling it out now, this will be better for like our kids who are going to eventually be in coffee if they want to be in coffee and like or our kids in coffee. Um, and so like it's better for us to be tackling these things now to set it up for the later generations because like who like I said like the unification and all that stuff that's going on like it's going to be so different you know in a couple of years and then on and so forth so yeah. Meister Colleen any thoughts? Why, why are we talking about these things in coffee? Why are they important? Well because you know hopefully we have coffee in the future and hopefully we are able to um, turn some of these conversations that are really inward looking about our own industry practices and retail practices and roasting practices and start to understand that these power dynamics as Jen was saying still exist within our supply chain um, and these mythologies that we tell ourselves about um, you know where our coffee is coming from or how we treat our baristas or the emotionality that it is uh, necessarily inherent in the way that we're serving specialty coffee um, does have an impact on everyone in the supply chain and because it's coffee is about people it's not about coffee um, and we really need to start to have these conversations and one of the one of the most brilliant things that I think came out of this morning was you know where Michelle said um, we you know, coffee is so great because you know, we, we recognize these changes and then we have this convening power to make these changes and they can come a little more quickly. And that's something that you don't find uh, in many other industries. Um, and so this convening power is, is something that really gives voice to a lot of the, the kind of relevant topics, I think, of um, what's happening um, you know, online or you know, the, thing, the things that we're feeling across this country and across the globe. Um, but then, you know, also recognizing that we have, we are in a kind of nascent industry where a lot of the retailers are, are being driven by this passion for coffee quality and missing this other, you know, human resources aspect. And that is pervasive throughout all of the decisions that we're making, um, whether it be the coffee that we're buying or who we're buying from, um, what kind of importers we're sourcing from, what kind of information they're giving us, uh, to, to down to how are we accommodating people of different needs within our retail spaces and production spaces. I think a lot of people just wrote down the phrase convening power in their little notepads just now. Yeah, the way, right, so to, again, to sort of rephrase, the way that 
we engage each other and the way that coffee brings people together sort of heightens that, that um, responsibility. Yeah. While everyone's writing about the convening power, I think that I, in my mind I just wrote down that coffee's about people, not really about coffee. That's what makes this, nas this industry nascent. There's nothing new about the coffee industry, nothing at all. Um, in fact, most of what we do in specialty coffee is exactly identical or completely tethered to what they have done in commercial coffee since the dawn of time. The thing that makes it different is the energy that people who call themselves specialty coffee professionals bring to that table. And I think that, again, that idea of um, people reflecting to each other the kind of behavior that you want to accept or the kind of behavior that you want to spread is also something that can only translate to customers if we're able to do it with ourselves and with each other. Uh, if you think about, you're thinking about the different kinds of power dynamics, if you have an unhealthy power dynamic behind the counter, you're certainly not going to suddenly magically snap your fingers and translate a sustainable and healthy power dynamic across the counter. And how do we draw people into um, the coffee shops and into the, the retail settings and into those conversations unless we're doing it with each other in a sustainable way? And ultimately, we need that energy and that, I mean, not to get all like woo-woo on you with Get some woo-woo. We need our like green chakras to really spread out into the. Um, so I have this particular quartz. Um, you know, we really do need customers in order to to survive, and the only way you can really do that is by learning how to connect with people that you consider peers before you look outside your own peer group, industry-wise or socially or anything like that. Um, it, you know, to sort of start spread that around a little bit. Yeah, so not just bring the people together, but the product of that, the energy, the th green chakra, you said? Yeah, a little bit of green. Jade? Some green, maybe some crown chakra. <laughs> cool. Crown. Colin, what do, you, what do you think? I mean, Tamper Tantrum is, you know, obviously in part yours. This morning session being very much about um, that social aspect and to some degree the ethics Talk, you know that everything that we talked about like why do you think that these things were important to have here I think like what you're talking about is is incredibly important and like we shouldn't underestimate what we can do so it's very easy to say oh well like a couple of nerdy baristas around the world will watch this and change their behavior but why can't specialty coffee become a vehicle for progressive change in society so if you look at like uh, look at a very simple example what does everybody think of if you talk about champagne what? Champagne. Champagne? You talk about it, it, it's celebration. <laughs> That's exactly So they have, if you think about champagne, like if you drink champagne on a Tuesday at your, you know, just at home, people are like, what are you celebrating? Because it's inherently linked to celebrating. You could say the same thing for green tea and health, you know? So if specialty coffee could become, when you say you talk about specialty coffee, why couldn't we associate that with like, with, you know, progressive diverse social change. No, it's completely possible. And it's something that w I see in most people that work in this industry that we're all uh, inherently interested in trying to create that change. Yeah, uh, it's something that I've thought about recently is this idea that, you know, when we look at ideas like fair trade and how we, um, how we s source coffee, it really is about ethics. And it begs the question like, well, why, why about coffee? Like, why not about other things uh, that are traded similarly, 
And I realized, you know, coffee has really no nutritional value. Uh, we can have, get bananas from a place where there's like slave labor, but, but we gotta eat. You know, so there's sort of this excuse like we kind of make for ourselves. With coffee, there's no excuse. You know, it has to be good in all these different ways. And the ways that it brings people together, there's sort of a higher ethical bar. And to some degree, it's a scary idea, and, and it's definitely a debatable one, but thinking about the idea that not only is it more important for coffee, but coffee is sort of the tip of the spear in that regard. Like, if you can't, like, you have to be able to get it done with coffee that helps make it possible for the rest of our lives, you know? And it's, it's, a, it's a heavy burden, and it's one that's not always very fun, but um, it's interesting just, I mean, there are obviously a lot of political persuasions that, are, that deal in coffee, and especially when you get into uh, coffee-producing countries, you know, people come from all different ideologies, but there is, even within whatever context you're in, things tend to be a certain type of progressive, a certain type of, like, looking for the welfare of people, I'm looking at seeing some of the SCAA videos that come out recently and, you know, focusing on the idea of coffee pickers, like when they choose which farm they work on, it's actually about the food they get. Like that's the number one criteria. Like it's mind-blowing stuff, but that's where like putting our emphasis on those things, it's not by accident or it's not about marketing, you know, and such and such. Or well, maybe not, not about marketing first, but that's a topic for later on this afternoon. Um, but that, that there is that sort of burden and that's a sort of interesting uh, dynamic there. Um, Michelle, I wanted to talk a little bit about what you said about the role of specialty coffee, the, the role that specialty coffee plays in gentrification. So talk about that a little bit. Like first, just in case, talk about gentrification. What does that mean? Or what does that mean from your perspective? Uh, from my perspective, gentrification is coming and making a previously look down upon neighborhood um coming bad in, neighborhood yeah bad neighborhood rough. yeah uh there's nothing there and and trying to trying to save it almost like oh we're gonna come in and we're gonna we're gonna put in this i don't know we're gonna come in we're gonna sell all this space to developers kick out all these people and and save this neighborhood and kind of reform it in a way um so coffee shops, I say, are in the first wave of that happening. If you see a coffee shop coming in, uh, then for me, at least, and what I've noticed and researched and read, it's like that neighborhood is, is on its way to being gentrifying because I've noticed that coffee shops are, uh, in a way, seen as safe spaces. It's like you look at a coffee shop, or you go to a neighborhood and you see a coffee shop, you're like, oh, this area is okay. Like, there is a space. Um, and we may or may not like realize it, but it's like because we know especially coffee is like very attractive to white people It's like there's a space where I know that there are going to be white people then it's okay And like that idea is very like ooh, Wow, but it's it's true and like we have to kind of accept that uh, So yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. So, so you know, I, I'm gonna guess there are people in the room that have maybe thought about this more. I've actually been really interested. I've been trying to find uh, through my contacts, and uh, I don't know if you can call someone an expert on gentrification, but an academic um, in, in the Bay Area that I can talk to, talk to uh, for, for the Porterfilter podcast regarding this very subject, because um, it's 
a tough one. It's one that we rec can recognize. But most of the time when I talk about this openly with people about gentrification and, and coffee shops, there's a resignment. People are like, well, what are you supposed to do? It's really an issue about um, like economic and income disparity and the ways that that correlates with race, culture, and um, um, uh, economic status and, and such and such. And so what am I going to do as a little coffee shop owner mm -hmm. to solve this giant problem? The problem is much bigger than us, but there are things we can do. Right. Um, so I'd say if you're a new coffee shop owner, to uh, find out, like, reach out to the community that you are going to be piercing. Reach out to the community leaders. Are there, are there organizations that, like, I suggest randomly, like, I don't know, they need a meeting space. Bring them, ask them if, like, they want to meet at your coffee shop. Because then, okay, you're bridging that gap between the specialty coffee shop and this, uh, let's say it's, like, a Black Lives Matter group. Um, so now they're coming in, and they're being introduced to this culture that they may not know about. Um, and then you're going to find that, okay, they're actually interested in doing this all the time. You're going to have new customers. And then through that, like, someone out of there is going to find that they're even more interested in what you're doing. And then you're going to have a new barista behind the bar. And so it's like, that's a place where you can do it. Or if you already have your coffee shop, you're already, like, in this gentrified neighborhood, it's like, oh, well, how, like, the, the damage is already done. Um, that's not to say that you can't go back and, like, reach out to those community leaders and find out, like, what you can do. Um, but, I don't know, that, that one, like, once the damage is done, it is hard to, like, kind of, like, revert back and try and fix it. Um, because there may already be disdain that's out there, like, against you. Um, but I definitely don't think it's it's like not worth like having that conversation. At least trying and seeing like what like it, you you never know. You really don't. Just go out and try. Right. <laughs> Anyone else have any thoughts on this? Well, I just have a sort of a, a reflection. So I grew up in a suburb of Rochester, New York, and I lived in a small town of Ithaca, New York, for a long time. So I I recently moved to Montreal about a year ago, and I. Um, and I live in, uh, so it's the first time I've ever really lived in a city. And the neighborhood in, in which my partner and I live are, um, it's a kind of a predominantly North African, uh, Greek, and um, Indian immigrant population, along with some American immigrants as well. Um, oh, those Americans. Mm, um, and, you know, it's actually funny because we, we think about you know, coffee being that first wave of gentrification, whereas I've always heard that, like, actually, when the queers move in, that's, like, the first wave of gentrification, right. and then the coffee shops move in. So anyway, so... And historically, uh, yeah. with, with LGBTQ folks, yeah. it's also, like, artists people yeah. talk about a lot, right? So, you know, we have a lot of friends that live in this neighborhood now, and we do want a place to go and, and meet and convene. Um, but, and then there's like a lot of opportunity, I feel, to, uh, to serve the, the people that are, are moving into those areas, um, into this neighborhood in particular. And I just think, I could open a cafe. I definitely could. I have the experience. I have, you know, a little bit of capital. Um, but is that something that I really want to do? There are plenty of coffee shops in this neighborhood and that are really most likely frequented by older Greek men who sit around and, and, and chat all day um, over espresso that, that ages over hours. 
um, and just just thinking about well I'm not going to be the one to do this but when somebody does you know it would really it would really mean something if this was also a convening spot for them as well um, having that conversation with other cafe owners in Montreal um, that are looking for other opportunities to expand um, there is this sort of pervasive feeling of yeah we, we we definitely want to be able to integrate with the community a little bit better bring our own needs um, and wants uh, but you know, just to be a little more cognizant of that. So I guess that's just a reflection on what you're saying. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to hear you sort of say that and to hear the idea of the coffee shop as being the community center, right? Because, I mean... That's, West, so, that's so second wave. Westward expansion happened a long time ago. Like, every place has a community already. There's a community that's there. There's already centers that exist. Just because it's not your community doesn't mean that that you know that area needs what you bring, which is really interesting to me about gentrification. Where those you know those businesses are always considered. You always read those articles about the pioneers of the neighborhood, which is also like really because there was something there before. It's not like you had to hack down a jungle with a machete to build your specialty coffee shop. Same thing goes with farms and varietals. Yeah, exactly. Right. And it's a little bit like, I mean, when you move to a place and you realize you're not the predominant member of the community there, rather than have to carve out your own community, you could just become part of the community that it already exists. And that's something that occurs to me about businesses that are already, you know, you sort of think, well, I already gentrified this neighborhood, what do I do? You still have power as a business owner, as someone who pays rent in a neighborhood to go to community meetings to try and get zoning laws changed, to um, speak about the potential for commercial rent control so that other businesses don't go out of business, to cooperate with other local businesses and make an impact there. Um, so there's a lot, I think, that we can do as long as you don't think of yourself as being a, a pioneer in, in some I way. believe the term is Columbusing, <laughs> right? Like discovering something that there's already people there or doing something. What about from the audience? This is, a, this is too big a topic to leave it just to the panel. Like any thoughts? Because the, again, the question of how do we address gentrification as especially coffee industry, as a community, as business people, as thought leaders, um, can I open it up? So I, I have a question uh, about how the more practical side of the gentrification topic is then there's the, the business reality of running a specialty coffee shop and the prices associated. And I feel like one of the things I hear most frequently is, well, you know, you open in a place that isn't used to having three or four or five dollar coffee and those old Greek men, you know, they're not going to want to, they're going to be like, who are these people charging this for coffee? So how do you, you know, come to some sort of middle ground where you can offer a product to the community but also pay the actual cost of running a specialty bar? Yeah, so do you kind of force this thing down these people who aren't used to it on this side or do you continue to support the exploitation on, on the, the coffee sourcing side with really cheap coffee so you can sell it for cheap? It's, it's, it's a, it's a or is that... The well, choice there? Is that the binary? Aren't you making the presumption that the older Greek gentlemen don't want to drink specialty coffee? And I think 
without having a go at you personally, which will probably sound like I am, but I think I do the same thing. So like I, I've got a shop and what you guys are talking about, I'm sitting here going, well, that's kind of embarrassing because my attitude has always been, we, our shop is right around the corner from a very poor part of the city. And people ask me about the people who live there. And I say, well, they don't come in. I did my bit. Uh, like, and listening to you now is frankly embarrassing because I'm like, I've never actually made the attempt to reach out. I've presumed that they don't like it. But then if somebody said to me, like, uh, who can like specialty coffee? I go, well, anybody can like specialty coffee. But I'm not actioning that in my behavior. So if somebody, ca if there is a price that we need to charge for specialty coffee, which I agree is true, then we need to break down the barriers of what, who we think that can apply to. So if somebody just has one a day of something that's great instead of four or five of something that's terrible, then we need to kind of allow for that to be true and to engage with them and let them say no if they're not interested. But is that really realistic, though? I mean, that's the kind of thing we say to e ourselves and each other. But is that really realistic? We don't talk about these things as being a luxury good, except when we say, it's an affordable luxury. You can have the best coffee in the world, and it's only $12 for an eight-ounce cup. You know, like... We talk about it in those terms, but is it really realistic to say that that's a, a gap that can be bridged in that way? Or do we have to accept that actually it cannot and you have to make choices accordingly? I definitely feel, definitely feel like obviously income inequality is not something that coffee shop owners can be expected to address. Um, but everybody likes good things. I think we all agree that specialty coffee is good, right? So I hear this a lot, but I live, so I live in Harlem and a cafe opened up um, and it, what they did was hire a representative of the neighborhood. And so that coffee shop looks like the neighborhood. It looks like the students from Columbia. It looks like people whose family have lived in Harlem for decades. But who owns it? A white a white business owns it, and that's fine, because what they're doing is employing people of color in the neighborhood, and so those people are getting opportunities to work in coffee who typically don't, and it also means that people will walk in the door. So like, I, wa I worked at a uh, pretty well-known cafe in the city for a long time. I was the first visibly person of color that worked there. After I worked there, just working there, uh, more people of color applied Right, because people and even customers were happy to see me in there because they didn't see it as a space for themselves. And how many coffee shops have we all walked by where there are only white people in that coffee shop? Right. There is a responsibility. All you literally, the literal only thing you have to do <laughs> is have a diverse staff. And then your diverse staff will do the work. So that coffee shop in Harlem looks like the neighborhood and represents all the people. So I don't expect necessarily coffee shop owners to, you can't address income inequality um, yourself. But I have overheard plenty of terrible conversations with people who are about ready to open a business. Uh, and it is clear that they don't believe that, they're not interested in engaging with the neighborhood. So what you can do is not be that person. Right. Try and understand why your neighbors might feel threatened by, uh, by you coming and try and engage with them in a real and honest way. Because what ends up happening is you tokenize your, neighborhood, your neighbors, you're fearful of them, you don't engage with them. And so that will not engender anyone to walk into your coffee shop. And so it means like checking yourself when you're being defensive, to go back to defensiveness. Uh, and I think defensive defensiveness is huge. 
And one thing I wanted to say earlier uh, that Meister made me think of is when you are being defensive uh, and when you do have a knee-jerk reaction to whether it's a customer who is, doesn't want you in the neighborhood or whatever, uh, think to yourself, is it more important, is, what, is you feeling defensive more important than what that person is experiencing? Because I feel like mostly good people work in specialty coffee and it's very easy to get defensive, but then think, are my feelings about this thing more important than that person's Is it about protecting experience? myself or is it about finding truth? Yeah, and is, it, and is it about being a good person? Is it, is it am I more, are my feelings more, better or more informed than this person's lived experience? And the answer is probably not. Right, and that defensiveness comes from, is it about me feeling like I'm a good person or being a good person, right, right. Can, um, Nick, I, can I, t can I speak it. to Brian's question yeah. for a second? Um, that I, uh, that super realistic question, right, about like, if I open up a coffee shop in a neighborhood and I'm charging $5 a cup, you know, for coffee in a place where the existing population is not used to paying that, um, and how do I get them to come into the coffee shop or do I, is it like a, a thing that I just resign myself to like, I'm not gonna be serving the people who live in this community? I think the real question there, and this is like the hardest thing that we could possibly ask ourselves, but why am I opening this coffee shop? Why am I opening this coffee shop here if it doesn't have anything to do with the location and if, you know, with the community that exists there? And if it is purely because I couldn't afford to open this coffee shop somewhere else, doesn't that speak to a different problem altogether? Also, what? <laughs> Preach. Um, that was a pedestrian walking by <laughs> on the street. By the I think too. I mean, it's. I mean, I sell green coffee. Like I know what green coffee costs, and you don't need to buy green coffees that force you to charge five dollars a cup in a community that won't sustain that kind of business so i think it really comes down to being intentional about your motivation as you move through this industry and just finding a lease that you can afford is not a good enough reason to open a coffee shop in a place again like find the problems that you are responsible for solving don't solve problems that aren't your problems to solve if you are worried about lease, just open your coffee shop in Phoenix, real cheap, everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> we need you. <laughs> I just wanted to say that Meister is right on, that you don't need to buy coffee that makes you charge a crazy amount per cup or for a retail bag. And that you, I mean, you can make a better impact on your coffee supply chain and your producer partners by actually understanding, like Meister says, I know how much green coffee costs. What do we know how much coffee costs to produce? Not a whole lot. So what kind of real value are we actually basing, you know, basing our prices off of? And this is something that I think that I'm going to go into later this afternoon. But you know, we don't know how much green coffee costs. We don't know all the different costs that are involved in production, and we don't do value mapping exercises for our suppliers. So, you know, when we when we're thinking about buying coffee at a certain price, we really want to know like 
who are we buying from and how can we make how can we have this added value for our community based on just a really good solid cup of coffee why does it always have to be this twelve dollar a yeah. cup coffee or five dollar a cup coffee yeah when we opened our coffee shop in san francisco we avoided the whole gentrification issue by opening in the most fancy neighborhood in san francisco <laughs> Um, but it was something that, I mean, it was, I'm not kidding, like, I, I, by finding, when we found that space, like, this is great, and it's not going to be this year, we can think about this more later. Then we were, uh, I was introduced to a spot, for, I mean, a, a, a landlord um, talked to us about a spot like 16th and Mission in the hardest of the Mission District, and th that location would be absolutely gentrifying. If you know anything about San Francisco and the Mission District, all the trendy stuff, that happens on Valencia Street. And it runs parallel to Mission Street, which is still very uh, Latin American, you know, very Spanish speaking. And that corner is right where BART station is. Um, and so in a way I was forced with this, this question. And the thing that came to, to uh, that I became aware of is the part of the problem, another way to look at it, a different facet is uh, when we open especially coffee cafes, we go, okay, who are our customers? People who love Specialty coffee, good coffee, you know. Okay, great, We're, job is done. There's a lot of those people here. Let's open a coffee shop. You just drew a big circle around all the affluent white people, you know, and all the affluent people. You didn't mean to draw a circle around white people. That wasn't what you were looking at. You were looking at coffee lovers. But when there's a correlation between those two communities, especially around there, you've just sort of sealed your fate. So how do you counteract that? Start with draw a circle around, these are the kind of people who live here. These are the types of people who live in this neighborhood. And then you start maybe looking at what would serve them. And that's where maybe there's an opportunity for, rather than here's what we do, how do we get you to like it? It's what do you like and what can I give you that you're gonna like and that you're gonna partake in? We should take some more questions from the audience or I'm gonna look well, let's, increasingly let's, strange I wanna, I wanna, standing here. I wanted to move on, we have about 15 minutes left. Um, I did wanna move on to another sort of juicy topic a little bit, which is um, what Jen touched on a little bit and I wanted to unpack that idea of like harassment policies. You know, um, it, it, in a similar sort of way, but in a different scale to the gentrification question um, comes the idea, the question of what do we do when? Right? What do we do when these things happen? And, and Jen, you said, um, as far as like, a company should have a harassment policy, it should include the consequences. It's not just like, we believe, and we see this all the time, right? Like, we are a harassment-free workplace and whatever, whatever, whatever. But then when the shit hits the fan and something happens, then everyone's like, I don't know what to do. And those stories like, well, that guy's not gonna get fired because he's too important to the organization. That sort of stuff, I think, resonates. And it makes a lot of sense to, to everyone here. So let's talk about that, like, so um, maybe there's some of those uh, power dynamics that you talked about that are easier to sort of unpack in that way than others. Um, the low-hanging fruit to some degree is actually the customer uh, barista one. So let's talk about that a little bit. So like something happens in the cafe. You talked about stories that people submitted, but at the risk of sort of putting you on the spot, and then again, I wanna open this up. What can be done in situations like that? So, because uh, it's so common, right? Right. Um, a bunch of these policies are, they should be written more for prevention than as an answer to something that's already happened. Um, and if, if you identify what harassment is, like 
such as uh, making a comment based on sex and race and orientation and body image. And there's so much more you can go into. Um, and then you say, like, uh, if a customer made this, then you, the barista, or whoever's the manager um, on that shift, you have that power to um, tell the customer to leave the cafe. Uh, and like, if you bring this up to owners or managers, sometimes they'll be like, yeah, yeah, you could totally do that. But they didn't tell you that you could do that beforehand. Um, and that's, that's the important part. Um, and some people don't even feel comfortable enough to speak up. Um, so sometimes it takes an ally on bar to be that person speaking up. Um, and I wrote the the policy that Michelle referenced. Um, for, for Akaya, for sponsorship. Yeah, right? for sponsorship. Uh, and it basically goes like um, any event that Akaya sponsors, uh, you need to have either your own code of conduct or um, use Akaya's code of conduct. And I have that published on the website. It's very easy to copy and implement. Um, and then the other uh, things that I, I wrote down were um, you need to have a diverse panel. If it's a panel or um, people emceeing or judges, they can't be all male. Uh, and then the other thing was you can't have uh, a sexual um, imagery on flyers or posters. Um, and the people who are participating in the event, who are speaking, who are sponsors, are also expected to be nice <laughs> um, and open and inclusive. Um, and I, I really wish I didn't have to write that. But I did, because I kept seeing all male judges. And shit keeps happening. Yeah. Yeah. But so, like, consequence. I mean, you mentioned in a cafe setting, well, you can ask them to leave. Um, you know, if you, don't mind, if you don't mind me saying, like, that's very easy. Like, because it's a very simplistic sort of scenario. Yeah. Like, most of the ones that actually happen, it's a, it, what makes it really difficult, right, is that it's not like, hey, would you like to have sex with me right now? Like, it's not something <laughs> like that. It's, uh, like you've mentioned, a comment about body. It's a certain kind of flirting, hitting on. You know, I put use air quotes because... That's what maybe the intent is, but how it's received. You know, you talked about power dynamics in that way as it being about money exchange. There's also that dimension where you're at work. You can't, like, you're not on the street where you can just turn it back, your back and walk away, right? You're sort of trapped there. So there's that element of it too. But um, so I guess that's the question. Like, is that enough? Like, so you can leave. And that, like, how do you implement the idea, like, is someone then duty-bound? Like, can, is another coworker to speak up for you? Then that sort of becomes their responsibility to execute the policy, and it creates a whole different sort of scenario. Not to, not trying to shoot holes in what you're saying, but, like, I guess this is where I want to open it up as well to the audience. Like, what has worked in your organization? What are some solutions? Because this is, again, it's one dimension of a larger issue, but it's one that happens so frequently that it's something that I think is worth unpacking as a community, huh? Uh, I think one thing, having 
done this for my own, or I'm currently working on it for my own cafes, is I think it needs to go beyond just stating policies. Um, and I think this speaks also to, to kind of treating it less as a reactive thing and more as a proactive thing. Um, like explicit training for, for managers in terms of recognizing and calling out um, harassment. Um, and even just training like for, for me as part of this new hire orientation for my staff, it's, it's very clear up front, you know, that like this is just, you know, you set the tone for your workplace from day one. And I think that is something that, you know, because you don't want to come to a situation where you have someone that you're sitting down and having a conversation about, like an employee about sexual harassment. And they're like, well, I didn't know. And then you like pull out the manual and you're like, well, it's in here. Like that is not, to me, that's like the worst possible scenario is that I don't want to ever come to that point. I want to make sure that that is a tone that is set from like day one. And I think that is really important. So how does that play out then. So, you know, you, you, if you don't mind me putting Liz on the spot, like you went from, well, it's not just good enough to have a policy, you have to set a tone. Well, what does that mean? Like, and how does that play out in, in certain situations? Well, like, how I, would that change the way that an interaction might happen, for instance? I think like in a, I think now, you know, we have managers who are better equipped to respond to situations and so that the burden doesn't come onto the person because I think that when the burden falls on like the, the person and sort of the lowest rung of the ladder becomes a huge problem and you need, and this speaks I think kind of to everyone's panels about like these power dynamics and having people be able to speak, people who are in positions of power being able to speak for um, or on, on behalf of other people so that they don't have that pressure of having to like, hey, I've been oppressed or I'm being harassed. Um, so that I think is probably one of the biggest ways is really just having the managers recognize and call out those things. And that's true, not just for like, I mean, one big way that I've seen this happen is that we have some employees who are transgender. And so things like misgendering are becoming increasingly something that I'm, that I'm trying to remind. Like, so from day one, I try and have people like discuss which pronouns they prefer to be, to, to um, be called or like, um, if someone misgenders then I don't want that person, the person who's being misgendered to have to be like, that's actually not correct, but rather, like the manager should be the one to be like, hey, these are the pronouns you need to use. End of story. Right, right. Anyone else? In the back? It actually works for both the question before and the one now is traceability. And you, both of you, were talking about in a podcast for Cafe Imports about a specific that. Like, talking about price, how to open everything. And also, as an employee, so as employers, we develop flyers, how to brew, how to roast, but what about us as employees, how to treat each other? It's policies, but we should, I think, what I do with my uh, assistants or when we back together or when we, we talk is just talk and introduce yourself as I'm your boss, but not. I'm there for support. Let's talk. Anything that you think that is wrong, just talk about it. But nobody talks, nobody develops a flyer or a training for me how to treat different people. Because I'm from Colombia, different culture, different way I grew up than here. But that introduced me to a things that they don't have, that is communication, love for each other, support for each other, that we have down there that most of you guys don't have here. And I believe as a, I'm not a business owner, but I think that's all you need is a support. And that is not offering most of the businesses. That's my opinion. Yeah, thanks for that. Uh, my approach at my company, like, and, and I think it's been a little, I've found out that it's been a, a little bit unique because for me it was, it's a challenge like to have sort of a policy that uh, not just protects our employees but creates a safe space for them to act. 
And the only thing I could come up with was that when there's a situation that involves harassment, no matter what they do, they're going to be okay. Like they have a blank check to do whatever that situation requires. So they're, they're not going to be afraid of, I'm going to get in trouble. I'm going to say the wrong thing, say the wrong thing to the customer, whatever, that we as the business uh, management would bear the responsibility of the consequences and that we would sort of clear them like they could essentially do no wrong because recognizing and embracing the challenges of that situation, that sort of no-win situation. Um, Meister, take us home. So we're talking about all these sorts of things. You know, circling back, you, start, you kicked off the morning, again, in a very personal sort of way. Like, how do, so I guess the question is like, how do these issues, um, how do they weigh in, when it comes to ambition and vision and plans and for you and for, I think you're, the, the way that you might restate the message in light of that for the, for the audience. Try that again, say that again. The, um, <laughs> you know, the, the stuff that we've talked about, like, d does that relate back to your talk? Like, absolutely. You know, the ways that, um, that we treat each other, the ways that, uh, you know, specific ways we treat, treat each other regarding, you know, gender, re regarding sexuality, re regarding identity, race, things like that. Um, that affects in many ways, like our ambition and our path, like you said, like you kind of have to take stock of the landscape of, of say, you know, you gave that example, right? Like if you want quality co coffee quality to improve, like kind of take stock of all those things. This sort of involves a whole different list of the constraints or, or things like that. I guess, I don't know if that makes Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately also what we're all talking about is, um, learning to not be afraid of each other and realizing that we're all different. Everyone's going to have a different motivation. We all have different goals and talents. And, um, you know, it's funny, even just hearing all of these talks about, you know, how do you deal with someone who's acting inappropriately and also talking about defensiveness? And the, all of our responses are fear-based in every case, right? Defensiveness is fear. Um, there's fear based into that. How do I talk to my supervisor if I'm being harassed? How do I talk to my supervisor if I'm unhappy in my job, but I want to stay with the company that I work with? We're all afraid of losing something. And that, uh, for a lot of people, I think, dictates the path that they take. It dictates where they end up. And then they stop at some point and go, how did I get here? And I don't, I mean, I don't want to be here. And how do I get out of it? Um, and I think that, Really, when you when one person stops being afraid, that feeling is contagious, and in contagious in a good way. And the the first time that you're able to say, "Thank you for telling me that this upset you. I'm sorry for what I did, and let's let's see what I can let's see what we can do." You know, rather than just saying, "You just said something creepy. Get out of my cafe." You, you know, to empower someone to say, "Hey, let's talk about how this makes me feel uncomfortable." And, and really work through that feeling. You can, you know, it, it really changes the scope of everything that we're capable of. It changes the way that we interact with each other and with ourselves because it's really easy also to be afraid and to think, what if I'm overreacting? What have I done? What have I gotten myself into? I'm not good enough. It's my fault. Um, you know, we really have to start to diffuse all of these little uh, fear bombs that we kind of carry around with us and we spread them to each other. So I do think that it's all very, uh, very connected in a lot of ways. Um, just uh, from my own experience, we had uh, some issues 
uh, at our business about one was about uh, gender, one was more about bullying. And I remember I went home to my wife and I said, you know, the, the hardest thing about this, well, not the hardest thing, obviously, but one of the big things is that when people come to you with these problems and issues, there's an expectation of you that you know the answer, that you know what to do. It's like, oh, I'm sitting down, I'm telling you about this problem, and what should we do? And I was explaining to my wife, like, you feel this huge burden because you feel responsible for them not feeling comfortable in the workplace. And you're, they're looking at you for the answer, and you're like, I don't know. But she said to me, like, well, are you not perpetuating that by, by giving the impression that you do know the answer? Like, you're not engaging with them, you're not asking them. So now when the, we do have issues, which thankfully aren't, aren't that often, my, the first thing I do is saying, well, look, I don't know the answer to this. But like what Nick was saying, what I do promise you is that I'm going to work hard to find a solution. And if this is a misunderstanding, then I'll let the person know that the, whatever they've said, that they need to take responsibility for making you feel that way. Because if you feel a certain way, you shouldn't have to apologize for that because it's, it's down to a certain circumstance that we can wipe that all out. But I think as business owners, we instinctively go, right, they're going to think I know the answer, so I'm going to pretend that I do. And that's the mistake I've made for years that I think is, uh, is probably one of the biggest lessons I've learned in this. <laughs> okay, well, that was really, really excellent. Uh, thank you very much. And thank you again for, to Nick Cho for, uh, for uh, talking us through that. <laughs>